Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this week, we're going to look at what it takes to make a game come back. Not like a retro game that's many years old, but a game that's like a, a couple of years old, a few years old, that just seems to be having a, maybe another day in the sun or under the moon or however you want to put it. Uh, kind of like one little game from, from software, a tale about the good people of Yarnum. I am thinking right now about Bloodborne and my perception, even if it's not the, the reality or even if it's just sort of in my own little corner of the internet, the perception that there is increased interest around Bloodborne and more broadly, what it kind of takes uh, to make a game that's a few years old have kind of its its second second time in the sun. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like this game is being passed around and discussed a lot more than it's been in the recent past. And I, I think the cautionary note I'll sound about this, and this is just like sort of an insight, I think, into how our, our minds work. Yeah. Uh, it's weird. Okay, so this is new to me. It might not be new to you, given that like you've generally had a higher profile and have like done a lot more stuff with Idle Thumbs and Polygon mm -hmm. over the years. But like, there's a weird thing that I'm experiencing with Polygon, uh, not with Polygon, with Waypoint, uh, yeah. that is sort of new to me, which is that like, when we have a discussion or cover something, uh, a lot of times I end up seeing it reflected back to us in weird ways yes. because yeah. like people are also like people are seeing Natalie play Bloodborne on stream and they're like, oh, that does look cool. I will also dive into it and here's what I think. And it's this weird thing of like it might not be a movement. It feels like a movement because right, like social right. media amplifies your self-selection. But uh, certainly, like in the past, you know, week or so, uh, especially since we did that eight-hour stream, suddenly there's a lot more people playing that game and discussing it. Um, and so you have this, these weird, like almost microclimate discussions uh, yeah. that I have no idea whether they reflect the wider world. But in our world, uh, Bloodborne is in season. Yeah, I, and I, I, I agree completely. I don't think it's like a big movement or anything i think it's you know natalie was streaming it there was a agdq run that was pretty well received um i think i think what maybe sparked a little of this i think it was actually on sale on the playstation store uh right after christmas or so and so a few more people grabbed it and that may have that may have started like a little tiny wave not like a, a giant wave but like a little wave uh, so yeah, it's it's been it's been interesting to see, and of course because it's a game I really loved, I really hated as well. But I also really love that game. Uh, it's it's making me just want to go in and play it again. And of course, watching Natalie play it, you know, on the couch and being you know super intensely invested in in her experience with it was super interesting and fun, and it made me like oh, I, I could play this again. I could I could lose another eighty hours of my life to Bloodborne. Yeah, it's Which interesting is a weird to me. Thing. <laughs> yeah, because this is not this is one hundred percent. I think not in general my kind of game. Like, I um, I bounced so hard off Demon Souls that sure. I never even touched Dark Souls. Uh, now, admittedly, I've got Demon Souls with me right now, and like I'm kind <laughs> of thinking I might fire it up, uh, but never, but. For some reason, Bloodborne was appealing to me in a way that, like, I think the Dark Souls series have not been. And maybe part of that is because, like, playing it in a group is just more fun. Like, yes. it's a hard game, but if you've got a ridiculous character that, like, Danica <laughs> and uh, Natalie just basically vandalized for 25 minutes, 
<laughs> then it becomes like then then there's something else to to latch onto. Also, sort of the collective problem solving and discussion uh, that happens around it is a lot of fun. But I also kind of think that maybe I kind of got a sense. Uh, and I think Patrick wrote about this uh, after the last DLC for Dark Souls 3 came out, that by the end of that series and the last DLC, people were kind of ready to see the back of Dark Souls in some ways. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm not an expert. Obviously, I I played Dark Souls 3 pretty extensively. I did not finish it. I did, I, Bloodborne's the only Soulsborne that I got all the way through. Um, But as I understand it, Dark Souls 3 was very much like a greatest hits kind of thing uh, for a lot of people. And they enjoyed it, but it was kind of like, okay, something new would be cool or something different would be cool. And Bloodborne is, uh, while it's obviously in the same sort of style of game, the way it plays is very different. It is a much more aggressive uh, style of play. And the, the sort of art direction and aesthetic of it is very different from the Dark Souls games in terms of just going for it with that goofy horror stuff, like mm-hmm. really 10 miles uh, over the top in orbit. Uh, especially by the end of that game. Oh my fucking God. Some of the places that game goes are amazing. And I actually would love, you know, this is, this sure is a thing. Uh, I would love to like play this game with you and just watch your reaction (laughs) to some of the stuff this game does and some of the places it goes. But yeah, I, I do think you're right. I think folks were kind of you know, the, the the series, they were ready for something else uh, at the end of Dark Souls 3. It was a very good game that gave people, I think, what they were expecting and wanted uh, from Dark Souls, but not really anything new, or, or not much new, at least. Yeah, I, I think Patrick was talking a bit about how Bloodborne rewarded aggression a bit more yes. with sort of a life recovery uh, mechanic. Uh, you know, that like, basically you don't take permanent damage. Uh if you can land a counterattack pretty quickly, then you yes. regain what, what you what you lost. Or you take a lot less, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that did seem just immediately more appealing and accessible because, like, my experience with, uh, like, Demon Souls, certainly, and I think Dark Souls largely follows in that tradition, is, like, literally you need to be, like, note perfect uh, <laughs> in the early encounters because, like, a missed block, a misstep, a misposition, you will take, like bad damage, uh, and there's yeah. no like redeeming that. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think just that just that little bit of like uh, more forward aggressive um, like play style did a lot to make that game seem less punishingly meticulous. Yes, I think it is. I, you, it's still a very ridiculously difficult game, and sometimes unfair. Like people will go on and on about this all day. I do think those games can be unfair at times. I do think there are times the rules are not perfectly communicated. I think there are cheap shots. More than anything, it's the cheap shots. Like when when Natalie got knocked off the side by that other dog, it was like, yeah, that's an extremely Souls moment because it was like such a cheap shot. Mm. Like, come on, come on. Okay, that's a that, one, that one I'll take issue with because yeah, she should have known those dogs were on her ass. Like... We like she knew she had pulled aggro from those dogs. We'd like we'd seen it happen. Yeah. She'd rounded a corner and was like, it was classic monster movie shit, right? Like, oh yeah, I can't see it anymore, so I think I'm safe now. Um no that, I think that, it's funny. Yeah. But I think it's cheap. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Uh I, I it was like funny. The, I'm glad it happened. <laughs> yeah, I like the traps it lays. 
uh, like the corpse with loot conspicuously displayed oh, yeah. in front of a blind corner, and <laughs> you go and collect it, and then just get like owned by a guy with a scythe. That's great. Yeah. Uh, but I think the other thing is that certainly from software is in a position that people are they know something's coming, uh, yes. and they're sort of sure. anticipating like what's next for the studio, right? Like. There, it seems like there's a general sense that you know the Dark Souls well might be dry. Like even if, if it's a, even if it's another Dark Souls game, it can't be, it can't be more Dark Souls in some right. way. There needs to be some sort of like meaningful aesthetic or or mechanical uh, you know change. And yeah, there was Bloodborne a teaser. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, but I, yeah, yeah, but I, but I think Bloodborne is like if you're kind of keen for okay, well, what else has From Software gotten there? in their toolbox, Bloodborne gives you a taste of, like, their range. Yes, it certainly does. And uh, I didn't watch the tease uh, from the Game Awards, but a lot of folks were banking on that being a Bloodborne sequel, which I think is also part of the the, the very small wave. Again, it might be a local wave, but the, the very small little movement towards uh, Bloodborne being interesting again. And I, God, I would play the shit out of that. I mean, I think at this point in life, I would play whatever comes next uh, from from. I might not like it very much and I might not beat it, but I think I will play uh, pretty much anything that they'll put out that's in this style of game because I'm interested. I don't know if, I don't know if you would even call me a fan. I, maybe I'm like a light fan. I, and it's hilarious to say that because I got through one of these games and I got I put 60 hours into another one that that feels like more effort than I put into. <laughs> most things <laughs> right but i'm still like ah very yeah you know i think there's some bullshit in those games but yeah. i still really i find them compelling for sure i mean you you look you you've definitely as we discussed in the show you've de- you're definitely like gaming's marty mcfly in some ways right <laughs> like the moment a game is like what's the matter riendo you chicken <laughs> it, it's like okay well this is your job now yep um <laughs> and so, like you're, you're like like again, the Souls games are are perfect uh, Danielle bait. Meanwhile, like God. I am totally like I'm just too lazy to commit myself to that. Like I will get baited, <laughs> and then I'll be like, oh man, this is gonna be really hard, and then I'll just like basically quit, uh, which is what I did with with Demon Souls. I also think that's fair. Like, there's other things to be done in life. <laughs> like, yeah, I think um, in some ways I probably am happier for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I, I think the other thing that can bring a game back into the conversation is like, if it's a new platform with a meaningfully yes. different audience and maybe yeah. even a different way of interacting with it, uh, you can catch a pretty big second win. And I feel like I'm, I'm maybe not seeing it as much as I thought I would uh, with Darkest Dungeon uh, mm-hmm. from, from Red Hook. Uh, but it's Switch release has definitely like been on a lot of people's radar. It's been on mine. Uh, it's, it's a good port. I have some issues with it. I think okay. it's, I think it is excess, excessively optimized for touch and not enough for the switch controllers. Interesting. Uh, okay. Which like, yeah, switch has touch. Like it has a touch interface. I would not say it's the best way to interact uh, with the switch in a lot of ways, uh, especially okay. specifically that darkest dungeon doesn't really scale the UI any differently on the switch. So it doesn't like, it's still set up primarily as it was on PC, which means that its interface makes a ton of sense. If you have a mouse and keyboard, 
but on Switch, I definitely feel like I'm struggling a little bit uh, more than more than I anticipated with it. But but if you can, but if it does sort of like sort of hook that that Switch audience and get a lot of people who generally are playing, you know, generally are, are playing like long, grindy, more plot-driven RPGs, and suddenly they're sucked into uh, Darkest Dungeon. I think that produces, it's going to spur for the discussion, but I think it's also going to spur a lot of like analysis and takes from maybe a different perspective than Darkest Dungeon was originally uh, you know, approached from. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about the game. I, I never actually played it. Uh, it. I know it's a roguelike. That's pretty much what I know. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a it's an RPG. It's a tactical RPG uh, roguelike in, okay. in a lot of ways. So like, um, it's almost like active time battle uh, structure. It's a really simple. Uh, you know. You've got a formation of four mercenaries of different classes, and they all line up on the left-hand side of the screen. The monsters all line up on the right. And where they are uh, in order, like the first-ranked guys can only do melee abilities, but if you move that character back two ranks, they lose, like those melee abilities deactivate, and okay. uh, support abilities kick in. So like how you play with formation uh, matters a lot. But the, the big thing is that... Um, you it, the entire thing is sort of structured around this really deliciously overwrought gothic gory esque <laughs> uh, story of you're coming back to not so much reclaim your family's fallen manor, uh, the darkest dungeon, uh, but more burn it to the ground and close the portal to hell that your <laughs> that, that your uh, <laughs> eldest living relative uh, accidentally opened. Wow, and so yeah, so it's it's all Cthulhu mythos uh, bullshit. But the cool thing is, like every every foray into these different mini dungeons uh, that slowly like grind up your troops and unlock access to mini bosses, and then like sort of the game is divided in acts. There's there's sort of like big bosses on the way up to the darkest dungeon, uh, but each time the length of the foray gets longer. Being able to sustain your party in the field becomes tougher. And between missions, like your party will carry negative status effects, right? Like uh, somebody will come away with a blood disorder and Hmm. will basically be super susceptible to bleeding out during combat because they encountered some sort of like, you know, weird vampire creature or something, or somebody is just terrified of fishmen. Uh, because a battle against fishmen went really badly. And so now, <laughs> sure. whenever you're going into sort of the watery caverns, uh, the odds of that character just having a full-on freakout that like basically uh, deactivate them for like two turns, three turns, uh, pretty high. So huh. it, it becomes about like managing the increasing idiosyncrasies of your party and building sort of a sustainable dungeoneering uh, engine uh to sort of keep powering up the ladder now the catch is it is permadeath uh one of the frustrating things about this game is that you won't ever lose but if you like have two bad dungeon runs in a row basically and lose a bunch of your high level characters um you kind of have to go back to the minor leagues and start grinding up new characters uh, huh. Again, and that is maybe 
I think it's one of the reasons the game had such longevity and, and hooked a lot of people on it. But also, I don't know if that's fun. Yeah, that's... That sounds fair. <laughs> I mean, it does sound really cool. It actually hilariously sounds like, you know, like managing a team in real life. It sounds like <laughs> a little bit of a, a little bit of the too real there. I mean, obviously with the, you know, sometimes people are afraid of fishmen. You know, that's fair. That's, you know, they saw the shape of water. They had the wrong reaction to it. And that's just that's fair, you know, sometimes. Uh, but oh, God. I feel like I have this in me, this like latent uh, desire to play these kinds of games that will just hurt more than they're fun. And, uh, I think, again, I think this is a, a very uh, Danielle friendly game. Yeah. Because uh, it is like, <laughs> uh, I think somebody even described it as like, um, like football manager for dungeon, dungeon uh, raids. Oh boy. Yeah. And it, it very much feels like rotating your starters in and out of the lineup. Uh, putting people on, you know, rest, putting people on training. Uh, there's a lot to do between the missions that sort of involves shuffling people around, making sure they're happy and being cared for and getting them ready for the for the big game day. You know, that sounds amazing. I think I would like that. Yeah, well, it's on, <laughs> it's, it's on Switch right now. Uh, so, but I'm, I'm really keen to see if this if this gets any pickup, right? Like, I think yeah. the people who are most interested in it to start were people who just wanted a version of that game that was easy to carry around with them. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But will it catch on with people who bought the Switch primarily for, you know, or people who've been using the Switch primarily for, like, games like Stardew Valley? Right, like, yeah. is that is, is there a meaningful intersection of those Venn diagrams? I have no idea. Well, it's interesting. Stardew Valley is also a game that kind of had this little second renaissance because it was on a new platform as well. I remember it being a that's true deal. Uh, God, was it almost two years ago now? Um, it might have been when it first came out on PC. I remember uh, my girlfriend being like obsessed with it and playing, you know, hundred hours of it or, or whatever. Uh, and then I didn't hear too, too much about it uh, for a while. And then when it came out on Switch, you've been playing it. I know that uh, Joel and Natalie have been playing it on Waypoint uh, and really enjoying it. It seems I, I just I like that a lot, that that other platforms can kind of give something new life in a way that it just sort of makes me a little bit happy. It's kind of like, all right, devs of a good game. Here's another chance to kind of hit a new audience or, or hit the same audience in, in, in a different way. I know Night in the Woods is coming out on Switch soon as well and that would be the third platform i'll have played it on yeah that'll <laughs> be know, a in the last year so that'll that'll fit really well it'll just sort of suit uh obviously we talked last week about sort of the switch itself and and uh, systems that change your relationship to games but it feels like there's a lot of games that god they'd be such nice bedtime games on switch and not that i only play bedtime games on switch like i play Anything I can on Switch. I think like a lot of people in our in our you know station in life, Switch games are nice because they're convenient in certain ways. Um, God, I would just love to curl up with that game uh, in bed and just be like, oh, let's let's talk to Angus today. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like, let's go hang out. <laughs> I think that'd be nice. I think that's in uh, next month, which is like within the the year of it kind of coming out. There's also, um, I'm trying to think of another game that's really kind of gone through this. And, well, L.A. Noire, I think, was also another one uh, that kind of had a yeah, real no, second renaissance. And that, that's a case of, like, 
if a game goes away long enough and then comes back on a new platform, like it becomes relevant again. Like yeah. if like if if Red Dead One ever gets a PC version, uh, for yeah, instance, yeah. like I like I promise you, tons of people will start playing and discussing that game uh, again, yeah. which which could be a lot of fun. Um, but it's a, it's a weird thing where like yeah, LA Noir gets this sort of second win because it it sort of was on all platforms and now it got updated. Uh, to some newer ones, and then the Switch version was, was really key there. Um, it's interesting that like a game like GTA V, uh, hmm. which yeah. has never gone anywhere, it just continues to sell really, really well. Um, it's been one of the biggest games of the year for like the last three years uh, at right. this point. Um, doesn't really seem to get discussed. Like People are out there playing it. But you don't see this continued and ongoing like enthusiasm for the game translating to any kind of interest in discussing what that game is actually about uh, or, or what happens in that game, which I think is, is interesting. Like You need that sort of illusion of scarcity or disappearance or, or fading into the past if you're going to spur a new discussion. Yeah, it needs to be sort of, uh, it has to go through the whole cycle, right? It has to go to obscurity to be back in the limelight <laughs> in certain ways. And I also don't know how much of that is me not keeping up with it. I read stories about GTA V fairly often, obviously because my girlfriend does what she does. Mostly is, about the online stuff though, right? Yeah, it's, it's about the online stuff. It'll be like, oh, this ridiculous, you know, GTA billionaire is gifting people with millions of dollars yeah. or, or whatever glitches. Like I, I find that stuff fascinating. I, I don't really play the game, but I, I find the stories about it really interesting, but it never feels like it went away and it came back, baby. Like here's the new version of GTA. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of always been in the, in the background, I guess the, the, the service game, uh, writ large in some ways i suppose it's kind of always there yeah i guess that's the are people even like really engaging with the story of gta at this point or is yeah. has it become an avenue into uh the increasingly like elaborate online world uh that yeah. people are living in which is i need to pay more attention to because it sounds like it has developed an entire like sociology within itself that is really <laughs> yeah. interesting like there's that story that um oh hell i can't remember who wrote this um I, i'm gonna look it up right now because i don't okay. want to yeah uh botch this but the white flight in the su to the suburbs of gta do you remember oh, this oh shit yes 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 i definitely remember this happening um this was at kotaku yeah because um, kotaku covers this game pretty extensively uh which is really cool and fascinating, actually. I mean, that that pretty much says, right, that there's definitely an audience and an appetite for this. There are people playing this game and, and like, engaging in this game and having, a, a, like, fascinating social constructs within this game that I don't really play and am fascinated by. Right. Uh, I cannot. I cannot find this story, which is. I, I definitely know what you're talking about. It's like a suburban. Okay, uh, I, I think I got it. Uh, yeah, it's uh, Zach Sweezen. Oh yes, yes, yes. Of course. Uh, but yeah, yeah GTA Online uh, pushes crime into the suburbs, frustrating residents. I, it's God, life imitating art, imitating life, imitating. Yeah, it's it's such a it's <laughs> such a weird thing, uh, yeah. especially because like. As I understand it, like the, sort of the, one of the points of that game was that like the the world would be this ridiculous open world, 
violent as hell. You know what I mean? Like it was going to yeah. be, uh, you know, Crime Town USA. Uh, and so it's probably a podcast by now. Who knows? I'm uh, sure but, it is. <laughs> uh, but that was sort of the idea. And then people like are basically trying to protect their wealth uh, in that world. Yeah. And so they're like, well, wait, well, hold on. Not crime against me. <laughs> it's funny how that is. Funny how that reflects life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, very much so. <laughs> I never God. thought the wolves would eat my face. <laughs> Jesus uh, Christ. Yeah. God, capitalism. It's a thing in video games as well as life. God, that's so that's so crazy. GCA is so interesting and and I mean honestly all online communities are interesting for this sort of topic. I don't really play online multiplayer games almost at all. Like occasionally I'll dip into something if I find it interesting. It's just not what I prefer to play a lot of the time but i sure am there for any of these weird stories about groups of people doing interesting things or or reflecting things from life in a a virtual world setting i there's something about that that is perversely fascinating to me but (laughs) yeah yeah it's uh the other thing i guess i'm wondering is to what extent do these discussions continue, but they just continue on within community spaces and are completely overlooked by like most people in our line of work? Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, I cause like, fair. obviously like Patricia, like her beat is to sort of keep track of these discussions a bit better than you or I do. Um, yeah. Or like a writer like Zach Zwiezen is like basically fully embedded uh, yes. within that community. Um. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is going on every day. And yeah. uh, somebody is just, you know, sort of conversant in what's going on in those communities can actually pull out what's interesting to, you know, your average Joe or, or whatever, somebody who's not in that community. An average Joe for GTA anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but, God, it's so weird and interesting. Oh, man. Um, there's probably a lot of meat here, but we should probably move on to our weekend correspondence and uh, take a look at some letters, unless you have more to say no. on on this. Okay. Ready to tuck in. Oh, let's get ready. Let's get ready. We've got, we're starting out with a friend of the show, John Rennish. Rennish uh, sent us a nice email saying, Happy New Year, weekenders. One of my goals over the winter break was to catch up on some reading, so I pulled out Jason Schreier's Blood, Sweat, and Pixels while heading to bed. After just a few chapters, the candid tales of Project Strife had caused a full-blown anxiety attack and sleep never came that night. Has learning more about the behind-the-scenes workings of the game industry impacted your roles as journalists and critics? Would it be beneficial if your readers knew more details about what goes into your work? Have a great 20-great teen. I'm sorry, it was have a 20-great teen. (laughs) Thank you. Rennish. Uh, I think a lot of people who do what we do, uh, at least... uh, sort of the way we do it more as critics uh have a lot of close friends in the industry and have seen them uh develop drinking problems and or anxiety problems and or other sort of battle scars from working in the industry i think that's pretty common it's something that we see a lot of it's something that's a real issue and a real problem and i I think we've all been very vocal about labor issues in the game industry being a, a really intense and serious problem it's it's an industry that does prey on young talent it has massive turnover 
we we talk about crunch all the time. We've talked about horrible studio conditions and knowing how bad that stuff is. Uh, I don't know how it can't affect you as a human being. Certainly, as somebody who you know cares about people being treated well and uh, fairly <laughs> uh, in in the world. So it it certainly affects me. It certainly affects me as somebody who who gives a shit. It also gives you sympathy, certainly. Uh, you know, even if you're critiquing a work. And it's a pile of garbage. And sometimes games are a pile of garbage. All games uh, are, are sort of, to borrow a phrase uh, from Cameron Kunzelman, made from duct tape and glue. And, you know, the seams are just painted over, basically. Everything, no matter how masterfully coded, has a lot of seams in it because that's how games are made. There's a lot that goes on. There's a lot of moving parts. Not everything fits well together. And I think you can have a lot of sympathy for people who you know, have gone through a lot of shit to, to make whatever it is they made. That doesn't mean it's uh, necessarily a laudable project, uh, but it, I, I definitely think it's important to separate the fact that human beings made something, human beings' livelihoods are on the line, and also the things they make are not always good, and that's okay to say and important to say, uh, sort of as critics. Uh, but I still am in favor of every human being having things like health insurance, enough money to live, food, and shelter, so... There's that. <laughs> yeah, I think, boy, this this hits on so many uh, levels. Like, there have been, like, if you lived in a town with a major game studio um, and sort of fallen into the circles of those studios. Uh, yeah. So, like, I went out, once went out drinks with a bunch of people from 2K Marin uh, shortly before yeah. the, the axe came down, uh, while a lot of that team was recovering from uh, just the nightmarish years of work they put into various uh, XCOM related projects. Yeah. And like you can't not be affected on an individual level by the fact that like you are hanging out with a group of prematurely like burned out and like aged like late 20 early 30 year olds uh, yeah. from you know basically a, a series of years of mismanagement and mistreatment uh, on a personal level, you you can't help uh, but but be affected by that. Um, in a case like that, I'm not sure it changes my approach as a journalist or critic meaningfully. Well, journalist, hold on, but like critic, not really. Like, right, right. As a critic, I probably tend to I try to like I try to factor in the circumstances under which something is made into mm -hmm. my analysis of what the, the outcome is, uh, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, a, a, you know a, a scene that I think you can't analyze without some understanding of the studio it came from is the Finkton stuff in Bioshock Infinite. Um, sure. Like, Irrational was a sort of notoriously, uh, you know, fraught studio to work at in a lot of ways like people like like that studio i think ended up crunching on pretty much every major project um yeah. and there was there was a lot of stress always built around that studio so if you see the finkton scene which is sort of this uh you know workhouse uh sequence in bioshock infinite you can't not like if if you're not thinking on some level that it's being self-referential to the circumstances of game development in the, you know, the 20 teens, uh, I think you're missing something 
as a critic, yeah. right? Like that's that's a case where you you need to be you need to be thinking about that stuff. Um, but I think you can draw you can you can draw that line. What's been interesting is that, and we encountered some of this with uh, Life is Strange Before the Storm, yeah. and people are starting to ask it, ask it with regard to uh, Detroit Become Human uh, because of the story that emerged out of the French press. Uh, the French press. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I like that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, but the stories about that, that Quantic Dream uh, may be a really toxic uh, work environment as well as a uh, very prejudiced one. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who want those angles covered in any discussion of the game. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also a lot of people who want those games maybe to not be covered at all or not really be critiqued as works of, not critiqued as creative works, but critiqued as products of unethical business practices. Yeah. I don't know if I can go fully there uh, because, like, I think both stories are important. I think both angles are important, but, like, I think... Like, Before the Storm being made with scab voice talent mm-hmm. uh, is a very frustrating uh, development for anyone who cares about like fair labor practices. Yes. At the same time, the game exists. It's popular. It does a lot of interesting things. I also think at a certain point, you need to acknowledge the circumstances under which a product was made. And then also discuss the product. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> Go on, sorry. No, I mean, that, that, that's basically like, that's, that's basically all I've got, right? It's like, yeah, the, 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 the broader, the more context always helps. Uh, and I don't think you should ever be like, oh, I draw, you know, I, I, I draw a line between the creator, the process, and, and, and the out end, and the final result. Because uh, I think that becomes really self-serving and self-exculpatory. Uh, I think you sort of have to confront both, uh, but you also need to be compart- able to compartmentalize uh, for the purposes of certain discussions. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's, that's what we ended up doing <laughs> around uh, that game at Waypoint. Like, I, I loved that game. I thought it was fantastic. I still need to, to finish it, but, uh, you know, the first couple of episodes were great. And uh, Patrick agreed. also thought they were great and also were made with scab labor. And that's something you have to, you know, certainly acknowledge and certainly talk about and certainly discuss. Um, but ignoring that it exists, I, I don't know that that's the right call and was not the call that that felt right in this case. I guess everything is on a case by case basis, of course. But well, yeah, it's uh, there's it's also a frustrating. Yeah. Like. These are the stories people like know about and have been like. These are the stories that get out, right? Right. But it's weird that I don't hear as much of this around, say, Rockstar Games. Right. Uh, which, like, there's always been so many, like, rumors and discussions just about, again, any Rockstar studio being a really fraught place to work. Uh, yeah. You know, real pressure cooker environment in ways good and bad. Uh, but... It is a little. It, it's also a little bit odd to me that, that no, this is, this, this is sounding very whataboutist, 
Uh, and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying not to not to come across that way. Sure. Uh, but sometimes I feel like this industry is so much more compromised with regard to worker rights and treatment of employees um, that probably just because we haven't heard specific stories around a popular game, those, those circumstances still probably exist elsewhere. Sure. Yeah, it's endemic. I think a lot of these issues, labor issues, issues around crunch, issues around cutting corners and screwing people, frankly, uh, exist fairly endemic across the industry. I, I haven't heard... God, there was a point I was almost keeping a list of, like, places I would consider working if I ever, you know, jumped into development. I had about two studios on the list ever, like, yeah. after, <laughs> you know, hearing stories. And even those were kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, just just from knowing people and just from hearing stories. It's, it's a really fucking difficult industry uh, to deal with. And it's difficult in ways that absolutely can be dealt with there there are potential solutions to the problems that exist there um i mean there's potential solutions to every problem i suppose but well, they're not going to be easy solutions but they are there these are things that are possible well and it's also it's going to take a hell of a lot <laughs> all right and a quick yes. side here i also just yeah. hate the way a lot of the stuff is discussed like game informer ran a decent piece on the problem of crunch in the industry but it also felt like a piece i've I've read a few times, right? Like why it sure. happens, how it happens, different people's feelings about it. Uh, but I kind of felt like the piece kind of privileged it as a story of like project management failure and why it's like inefficient for, uh, you know, why it's like inefficient overall for the company uh, mm -hmm. to to engage heavily in crunch, um, which it is frustrating to me that I think that story kind of reflects the biases of a lot of, like leadership in the game industry, which is that, yes. oh yes, like in addition to this being like cruel and, uh, you know, kind of frequently unethical, uh, it's also just not efficient for the company. It's, it's just not the smartest way to be, to be a capitalist. And one, I think that's probably bullshit uh, because the process is widespread enough that the companies that like routinely engage in it and lean on it to finish their projects, um, clearly made a calculation somewhere along the line that it is worth it to do this. Um, I and think the, they just get away with it because it's it's considered in a lot of ways an industry standard. And oh, it, anywhere you go, you'll see this, so it's fine. That's uh, a shitty attitude, but it's a prevalent one. Right, and I and I don't. I think it's it's pro it probably does a disservice to the issue to say, well, it's a it's a failure of project management. It's it, it's it's inefficient. Uh, it's efficient to somebody, you know, yeah. like that, that, like that's the other thing is that I think there's such a hesitancy when it comes to discussion of these issues to sort of like really frankly confront the fact that the exploitation is so barefaced and widespread. Uh, and it's often couched in these really sort of technocratic framings Yeah, that, you know, oh, if only we were more efficient and, uh, you know, and, and, and more effectively managed, we wouldn't have to brutally exploit our, our workforce. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. It's fucked. <laughs> uh, the other question, part of this question, uh, would readers, would it be beneficial if more readers understood what goes into our work? 
That's a good question. Uh, I, I'm like trying to phrase this delicately. There's a lot of bullshit that goes into, I think, everybody's work. I think every human being who works in any industry or any field understands and knows that there's a whole bunch of bullshit. There's always office politics. There's always everything uh, that goes into a group of human beings uh, attempting to put their heads together and endeavor to do anything, basically. <sighs> I wonder how much would be beneficial, and I wonder how much would be part of the sort of cult of personality around what game journalists do these days, uh, and how we sort of go about trying to solve problems and fix, and you know, find solutions uh, to <laughs> how we go about our work. Yeah, I um. I don't know that. I think most see the thing is I think a lot of readers do uh, understand. Like I think people who genuinely like don't understand uh, what goes into the job or like critique from places of ignorance um, are often not doing so in good faith. Um, right. Like, and, I, and by that I also mean like just make the first effort to see what's already been said around topics like you know, yeah. how reviews work, how coverage works, what the business brushes are. Like, there's a lot of transparency uh, about how this, how this industry works. It exists. Uh, you can easily find it. So if people are often, like, critiquing the output of a website um, from that place of ignorance, it's often coming from also a place, I think, of, of, of some degree malice. Sure. Uh, right? So I just, I, I think the people who passionately engage with site, you know, sites like ours, with, with, with uh, enthusiast press sites, um, I think they already kind of have a good sense of this. I think podcasts have, have really opened, opened that up over the past yeah. 10 years. Um, and the ones who don't and who are sort of gleefully in the dark about it. Um, Prefer to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that's fair. All right, so our next, uh, our next email comes from Yuri. Hello, R&D. I'm a day one listener, but writing for the first time. Uh, love the show and how you're touching some deep topics. Uh, on that note, though, my question is a light one. While waiting for a Christmas episode, I started listening to old Three Moves Ahead episodes. Thank you, Yuri. Nice. Uh, I sincerely enjoyed some predictions for the future of gaming and how the industry actually changed. So I would love to hear your thoughts on what the future of gaming will be five to ten years from now. With the good work, here's Yuri. Oof. Well, if there's uh, an Earth five to ten years from now, if we're not all in nuclear bunkers, um, I suppose if we're in nuclear bunkers, people will be making games out of, you know, cardboard and chalk and very basic physical yeah. materials. Uh, <laughs> so there's that prediction, you know, just in case we're, most of humanity is dead. Uh, I think people will still be playing games. I think they're still going to be making games and, and engaging in different forms of play because it's pretty important to uh, to the human psyche to play with things and to create things and be expressive. If, uh, you know, if the world keeps continuing uh, uh, on the on the note that it is, I sure would love to see a continuation of, of 
of seeing sort of uh, more experimental things or weirder things or more interesting things that kind of come out of very, very tiny games or very, very personal games uh, being made with like slightly higher budgets. I think we see that a tiny, tiny little bit of that with the sort of, you know, boutique indies, the, the Annapurna published type of games or yes, uh, take a drink, I guess something from a, uh, from Fulbright or Campo Santo. I get excited about those things. I get excited about, you know, smaller ideas or, or not smaller ideas, but ideas that come from smaller games being put into uh, games with at least appreciable budgets. Sure would love to see that kind of thing. Sure would love to see what the next uh, iteration of Tacoma and sort of what storytelling looks like with even a little bit more oomph to it or or what sort of interactive storytelling can become with that with that little extra influx of cash or creativity or whatever it is that uh, that makes... Uh, things work on a slightly bigger scale. That's what I want to see. I don't. I don't know what we're going to see, but that's what I want to see. Yeah, my feeling is. Um, so I think the, the the pessimistic part of me is we're going to see continue to see consolidation and more like risk yeah. aversion uh, within a lot of. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, actually, no. I think the, I think they're. I think I think they've draft kings that. Uh, to some okay. extent, and and okay. by that I mean like they have gone so aggressively after this new market. Um, they may have fucked it. <laughs> yeah, like like I think if if they had if they had sort of crept in slowly, uh, like an encroaching forest, right? Uh, I think they would have been able to slip a lot of this through. But I think EA in particular um, were so transparently exploitative about a lot of this and did so like in full view of the public around the star Wars license that I actually would not be surprised if, um, regulation starts to catch up with them. Sure. Um, so I, I actually think, I don't think the loot box tide has crested yet, but actually in the five to 10 year, uh, interval, I suspect you might've seen, what that what those business models look like change uh, and and get toned down. Yeah. Um. So that's that's the one thing. But I also kind of feel like the major publishers are going to continue to just concentrate around a handful of um, major franchises, right? Like, and that's going to be a little bit grim. Like, I don't think you're going to have a year of 2017 where you're going to have Zenimax financing a bunch of immersive Sims, uh, and, uh, you know, Japanese horror, uh, games, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think, I think a lot of that stuff is going to disappear at least at those, at those budget levels. Um, but where I maybe get derive a little bit of hope is that, as big publishers abandon those spaces, you're going to see more deep silvers. You're going to see more paradoxes uh, sort of step into those spaces and maybe start to like try to operate things at slightly higher budgets than they have in the past. Um, deep silver obviously already exists, uh, you know, right. in the, in that space and, and, and does that. I think paradox have generally been a lot more conservative uh, when it comes to, Placing bets, and I think it's probably wise. Like, if you're doing, if your if your model is sustainability, uh, then you actually can't be making company sized bets on two or three titles. Uh, yeah. it, it just can't be done. So I, I, I think I, I think we're likely to like 
I, I think in 10 years, maybe we'll start to be seeing a new generation of like Prey and Dishonored type games, like yeah. beautifully, lavishly, you know, funded and created. Uh, but I think in five years, those have largely disappeared and have scaled uh-huh. down drastically, uh, yeah. but do exist with smaller developers. Um, yeah. On the other hand, I think a lot more developers are going to be trying to make their platform game, right? So you're going to be seeing, um, as big publishers are trying to make their, you know, their destiny, uh, so, you know, or their, more, more accurately, maybe their division, um, <laughs> I think you will likewise see a lot of developers trying to make their, uh, oh, hell, um, dying light, right? Like sure. Techland has kept updating that thing um, and just refused to let it die because that's the franchise. That's, that's really good business. So I think that's the, that's the other thing we're going to see a lot of is um, big publishers, a lot more consolidation, a lot more risk aversion. Uh, mid-sized publishers starting to scale up into games that we would have formerly considered like AAA. And then a lot of your more successful, like, you know, middle-income developers are going to be trying to find their, uh, their franchise. Yeah. I like it. I like the way you're calling it. I think it's smart. Oh, if you, um, by the way, uh, this yeah. is actually an important question. So you've yeah. been following the fact that the, the market for graphics cards is totally fucked by uh, crypto uh, mining, right? Uh, wow. No, I, I haven't. Yeah, no. So uh, video card prices have always sort of followed a predictable pattern. The new, the new ones come out, the, the formerly new ones, everything declines in price, right? It's, it's, sure, everything sure. is sort of on an escalator downward. Uh, that is actually like stopping um, because everyone is starting to buy up GPUs to slam into crypto uh, mining devices. And I was seeing somewhere on Twitter that like somebody just came out with a motherboard with like spots for 19 different uh, GPUs. Ooh. So... Uh, the market for like graphics cards are increasing quite a bit in price and they're refusing to fall uh, even for ones that are no longer like top tier. I actually think if this doesn't change, um, that could be another interesting, like what if that just freezes like tech development to a large degree? Like, I mean, like right now, if you, if you, if you upgrade your PC, you're getting screwed. Um, I was thinking about it. I checked prices. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, but I don't know, like crypto mining is such a, (laughs) it's such a moral disaster. I mean, Uh, yeah. (laughs) But like, but what if we're just trapped in this phase where like these fucking libertarian assholes are trying to destroy the planet with their, uh, (laughs) you know, with, with their cryptocurrency. Uh, but then in the meantime have also managed to basically freeze, uh, like, the PC market at a certain level of technology. God. Yeah, that's, it's a little bit terrifying and uh, a little bit unsurprising, I suppose, given the timeline we live in. Yeah. I, I had no idea. I mean, as a, as an absolute PC idiot, uh, who just like, <laughs> I have a gaming laptop that somebody at vice purchased who knows what they're doing. And then otherwise, I just use Mac laptops for everything. So I, I know nothing whatsoever. And that's that sounds a little scary and bad even to me. So holy shit. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, I guess 
on the on the note of things that end poorly, uh, we've got <laughs> we've got a good letter here from <laughs> from Jeff. <clears throat> Jeff says, "Hey friends, long email ahoy. I tried to be as concise as possible." Catching up on some older episodes of Idle Weekend, Rob was talking about Battlestar Galactica Deadlock, which is a really kick-ass game and more people should totally play it. And that, of course, led to you talking about BS- the uh, BSG show. I watched the sh- I rewatched the show myself in 2017 and was kind of surprised at how I came away from it. I've gone back and forth on the show over the years, but going back to it this time has changed my view. There's something about the way it proceeds and ends that I just fucking adore. Spoilers ahoy! If you're reading this on the podcast, it's up to you if you want to read this part. We will read it, uh, but spoilers for Battlestar Galactica. Sound the alert, sound red alert here. The big question I spent the whole series waiting for is beautifully simple, maybe the one I didn't expect. Battlestar Galactica tells you exactly what's going on from the very first episode. We just didn't believe it. That's it. Six tells Baltar in episode one that she's an angel. That's it. She told him right up front, and it was the truth. The whole show does this. It spends its entire run telling us what's happening, and we spend the entire run saying, yeah, but what's really happening? I have no idea how much of this was intentional. I honestly think it probably wasn't. I think it's much more likely that the creative team painted themselves into too many corners and had to scramble to find a way out. But now, 10 years after the series finale, I don't think it really matters. I just look at the show as a whole and admit that it's so brazenly honest about what it is. Spoilers end here. Okay. Anyway... Are there pieces of media that you've had all had a roller coaster relationships with despite media not changing? Say, for example, a movie you loved and hated and loved and hated on and on over the years. Do you feel like any of these things have finally settled down for you? Or do you think you're likely to keep swinging back and forth on them forever? Apologies for the length. Have a good weekend, Jeff. Oh, Jeff, you've invoked Battlestar. All right, so here's the thing. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh,. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't, I look, I, so I'm in the middle of a rewatch. Okay. Um, okay. All that, all that head six, uh, which is what she's called, says is that maybe, you know, maybe I'm an angel. Right. Uh, like, I just, it 100% feels like that entire thing was just sort of cobbled together. And I think, I think yes. he's right, but like, um, the the other thing is the show doesn't show its whole hand right at the start because they are also throwing a lot of random shit into the mix. Um, yeah. So the episode I'm about to hit is uh, Maelstrom, where uh, where a major character, if we're not getting too spoilery, uh, a major character gets written out for reasons that I still to this day don't really understand. Um, and then later that character comes back, but it's weird and different now. Again, for reasons that are never 100% clear. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, there's so much in that show that, like, feels like it was ad-libbed, practically, that at no point does uh, do those early statements of intent really seem like they hold true. Um, right. Like, I just, I don't buy it, Jeff. I think, you know, I, I think uh, your telling cuts out a lot of very important very odd decisions they made in the middle. Yeah. I also, um, I've had, I've had some mixed feelings about Battlestar over the years. Now I watched it, uh, years after the finale. I think I watched it in like 2013 or so. I watched the whole thing. So it was after everybody was angry or everybody was happy or whatever. My feeling, and I can never get over this, uh, 
about the ending of the show is that the writers spent 36 hours in the room. They didn't leave. Maybe they peed in a bucket. And they had 15 versions of the script or, or whatever. Not just for the last episode, but you know what I'm saying. Like towards the end, when they're trying to tie up loose ends. Peed in buckets, ate moldy bagels. Okay, like, got just, it. Like full on, this is like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Aviator and his full, like his worst uh, parts of his... Uh, um ocd like mm -hmm. but self-imposed in this case not not a disorder but like self-imposed they were like we're not leaving this room nobody's leaving this fucking room until all these ends are tied up they went into a manic state they put together such insane stupid bullshit that because it connected to the beginning because it said oh the angel bullshit and this mystical bullshit and all this other bullshit because it tied into a neat circle they put their pens down after 36 hours. They all smell really bad. Everybody's very greasy. Uh, it's actually a little bit also of a like 12 Angry Men situation. Right. Where there's like one person who's like, nobody, we're not leaving. And everybody else is like, can we just do that? No. They found that thing that made it a circle. They put their pens down. And they said, we did it. We did it. We did it. Film that. They, they left the room. They gave everybody the script. Everybody made a fart face. And they just did it because they knew. Uh, just it was agony and painful and just they had to go with it and the writer said it was okay and it made a perfect circle so it's fine and good and everything's fine now uh, and I hate that so much and I really wish that the ending of that show was as messy as the rest of the show was and you know wasn't <sighs> my biggest problem sorry this is also uh, it's related but my biggest problem with the finale isn't just how stupid and contrived it is but it's also how fucking sexist it was it was like, it was saying basically all the progress we've made as a society where men and women are, you know, basically equals. They're pilots together. They serve in the military together. They, you know, bunk together. There's no shitty gender divisions. There's like a very specific line where Hilo and, uh, what's her face? Um, Grace. Know. Played by Grace. Yeah. Team. Yeah. Where they are, like, telling their daughter, like, oh, we're going to go build a cabin. And, and the, the woman is like, I'll teach you how to hunt. And then Hilo's like, I'll teach you how to hunt. And it's like, no, we're going to go back to old gender roles and be stupid and primitive and shitty. Because that's really the way it should be. Ha ha. God, it, like, for all the angel bullshit, for all the mystical bullshit, I can swallow that with a massive glass of water. I can deal with it, but I cannot deal with... Actually, the progressiveness of this show is really where we went wrong, and primitive stuff is better, and gender roles were better, and uh, maybe we won't make uh, robots that are going to kill us all if we're sexist. I hate that a lot. It makes me very angry. I'm sorry. This is very personal. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think the... Um... <laughs> Sorry, that was like a much longer yeah, tangent. So, so Jeff, we're clearly not over it. Uh, and we clearly <laughs> still go back and forth on it. Uh, but no, I do think the, the show ends up falling into this trap of like, all oh, this has happened before, all this will happen again. So clearly uh, the solution is to return to an antediluvian state uh, where we can somehow try to get it right this time. Uh, even though nobody will have a memory of what we, went, what we did wrong. And we're basically just going to give up on the idea of learning from our mistakes and instead... Just hope that if we stumble forward in blind ignorance, uh, everything will be fine. Uh, yeah, it's that is it is upsetting. It. Uh, I it is, hate it. Is it is an upsetting it. ending uh, that is somehow <laughs> meant to 
like deliver the idea that aha we've ended up at earth and it's your earth see uh which uh you know has also been tired since uh the hitchhiker's guidebooks um it was it was tired when there was a twilight zone episode about it in the 50s it was tired then yeah (laughs) um as yeah so things i go back and forth on um uh God, I feel like there's so much of this. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, there's a lot of bands that I fell in love with, and then I got some d- distance from them and found them ridiculous, and then yeah. later I came back around to, ah, but they were actually pretty good. Like, yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm a '90s kid. Like, Counting Crows sure. were a huge band uh, for me, and then I sort of like got a little distance and i was like oh man like i just can't stand adam duris's whiny bullshit it just drives me crazy um (laughs) i wish he would shut up and now like i look back and i'm like well you know if you're if you if you're in the mood for like sort of mournful uh slightly soul influenced uh you know depression rock of the 90s uh (laughs) like this was really the pinnacle like this is some of the best there is uh i mean so i go through like music a ton uh, and also, I think because you, you form such personal relationships with uh, music, um, yeah. it becomes associated with different times in your life. So that can yeah. also change how you engage and, and interact with it. Uh, oh, I mean, God, uh, Star Wars is for sure. Sure. Um, yeah. A, like, I am now comfortably ambivalent. Uh, towards Star Wars, but I think that's because I've basically come to the conclusion it's unredeemable. <laughs> sure. Like, I mean, it's, like, the new movies are, are fine. I really liked Rogue One. Uh, yeah. I have not seen the new one. I, I still need to. I'm hoping it can I make me care. Might. Yeah, uh, I think Because I did not like Force like Awakens at all. Sure, sure. But it's, um, it's mostly just, uh, those original movies were really, really enjoyable. I liked the expanded universe because well, lots of parts of it because they built off those original movies. Those original movies were also, to an extent, almost accidental, right? <laughs> <Yep>. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, there were so many things that went wrong that then had to be salvaged. Uh, like, clearly, if Lucas had had a firmer hand on the tiller, we would have gotten something as dumb as the original trilogy. Right. Um, so, like this franchise is now being sort of reconstructed as it goes. <laughs> and it's, it's just, it's become this weird ship of Theseus uh, situation yeah. where like star Wars is look, it's a media franchise. Now it's, it's big business. We all love, we all love star Wars, uh, but it is now a, but now everything that comes out of that is designed to keep the franchise rolling. Yeah. I, I do want you to see the new one because there are things there that felt to me almost revolutionary considering what it is. But I, I just, I want you to see it. I want to I hear what you think. For me, uh, I did a back and forth many times on Blade Runner, on the original Blade Runner, in fact. I, I sort of hated that movie the first time I saw it. I yep. liked it the second time. I've, my feelings on it really have shifted. I, you know... Give me the time of day, and I might have a different uh, read for you. I, I generally sort of love the movie in a lot of ways, but I also have a lot of issues with certain things about the movie. And, I am uh, still bouncing around wildly on 2049. Same. Really wildly. Like, yeah. extremely. I saw like, it again recently, 
And whew. it depends on the day you ask me. Like, because yep. there because there are moments I think about it, and all I can see are just the fucked up gender uh, yes, like approaches, uh, the uh, weird dismissal of the uh, like the pitting of the AI wife against the the sex worker uh, yes. in a really weird way. Um, just the fact that like we're no men's bodies being sexualized relentlessly in that. Right. Like, and again, it is, it is a world sort of extrapolated from ours. Uh, so to a degree, there's maybe an argument being made, uh, that like, of course, only get worse. Yeah. Yeah. Of course it's going to be a society that relentlessly objectifies women's bodies and creates like female sex robots, but like curiously doesn't market male sex robots that that aggressively yeah like maybe that's the argument being made but the problem is you're still consuming it right like you're still like you you still made a movie where there's a lot of women's bodies being like showcased uh in a really objectifying way um in addition to fridging them right apparent criticism yes that's you yeah the Deckard Rachel scene. I was thinking about that. I woke up thinking about that the other day, completely <sighs> randomly, and I was like, "You know, that was really fucked up too." Like, what's that about? Yeah, uh, it's there are parts of that movie that are genuinely upsetting, and not in the way that I, I think the movie intends. And I ca- I can't get over that. I also can't get over how beautiful it is. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? It's like, this yeah. gorgeous movie. It's so fucking beautiful. Oh my god, the cinematography. But also what it's saying just sucks in a lot of ways. I really do think that the movie does not do the work. Maybe the movie does want us to criticize how ridiculous it is to hypersexualize women and not hypersexualize men and to only show certain types of bodies as being valid and attractive. I mean, where are the people of color in that movie? Like, it's, it's really fucked. Yeah. And I don't think it does the work. But... I think it wants to do the work. It wants us to do the work for it. And it's just every other day, man. Yeah. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. Yeah. I it's, just don't know. It's, it's weird. But like, I think where I come down a lot of the stuff is, um, again, a lot of stuff we love. We also drink, you know, a teaspoon of poison with it. <laughs> of course. Uh, and is lo- <laughs> like, be mindful of it. Be aware of it. Uh, you know, love but critique. Um, yes. Do not like. Again, we talked about like my increasing ambivalence about just any kind of romantic comedy because uh, yep. if you scratch beneath the surface, most of them are poisonous. Yep. Uh, so, what do you do with that? Yeah, that's very fair. I know my beloved bullshit sci-fi. There's a lot of fucking garbage there too. There's a lot of very jingoistic. Like pro military, pro fucking be a badass. What does that actually mean? I I've got a lot with that myself. So I yeah yes yeah yes absolutely. Jeff, thank you. I I'm I hope you're not sorry you asked, Jeff. Because uh, <laughs> I know there's a lot there. But thank you for that question. I think it's probably time for us to talk about our weekend project. So, Robbie, you watching or reading or enjoying anything? Yeah. So did we ever go into the fact that I? I powered through Stranger Things. No, I don't think we okay. did. Oh, let's get into I it. I fucking love that shit, Danielle. Yeah? Like season two. We're talking about season two or one? All or of it. I just oh, I just yeah. I just went slurp. I just you know, it was like good. a kid with a milkshake and just but not a milkshake duck, but an actual milkshake. And you oh, just like just one. start like pulling it up through that straw and it's delicious and like maybe you get a bit of a headache, but you're still yeah. all good. Uh no, I mean 
it is such a well-crafted show and so expert in leveraging your nostalgia yeah uh that it is a show that at no point do i ever really forget that it's trying to evoke these feelings right like it's again like talk about things uh telling you what their intention is everything about stranger things is like look we we're drawing from the same collection of references uh that you're bringing to this we love the same shit we are for you children of the 80s grew up in the 90s uh you know like because like again 90s kids like grew up watching movies about 80s childhoods right like that's what you had on vhs that's the weird thing and yeah. so it's all about evoking that. It's all like bringing back the memories of that era and when you were this kid, but how much you loved these stories and how like you were a little scared, but you were also having fun uh, at the same time. That's all Stranger Things really wants to do. Um, and I'm 100% there for it. Like it is, yeah. it is carried off so well. And for some reason, I just don't find it cynical. Uh, in the way that um, the way like Ready Player One is sort of putting us off. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, yeah, I love that show too. I, I do think there's some sexism there, but I... I uh... Well, okay, so... Uh, I, I actually think, to be honest, yeah. uh, I think it, there's more sexism in sort of the reading of the show than there is in the show itself, which is interesting to okay. me. And I say that because, okay, you, have you finished season two? Yeah, all done. Okay. The episode, uh, and I think it's seven in season two, where it goes off, where... Uh, uh, it follows 11. 11, sorry. Yeah. Why did I think her name was 12? 11. It follows 11 in her awesome adventure yeah. with the cool kids crew, which I thought was the best fucking thing ever. It was really and good. And I want that show, and I, I feel like they were sort of, you know, getting ready for a spinoff, but like... Anecdotally, this is not scientific, so I will say anecdotally, three quarters of fans hated the fuck out of it, complained for days fuck about off. how much it sucked. How, oh, yeah, this was the fucking discourse for like two weeks there about this is stupid and it doesn't add anything to the show and it blah, blah, fucking blah. I had more mentions in my Twitter from angry idiots. I'm sorry, but I'm calling you idiots. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's more for your tone than your opinion, if if that makes it better. I don't but, need to listen to this show. Don't worry about it. No, no. Okay. You're right. They probably don't. <laughs> like, but like, 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 look, the sh- shitty people are not going to be like, fucking Idle Weekend is my jam. I need okay. to listen to that to keep up with the latest from Danielle and Rob. Yeah, I think you're right. Who we I, love. I think you're correct there now that I think of it. But there were a lot of people who were so pissed. They were just so like, this adds nothing to the show. And then they made giant fart noises with their mouth. And I hated that because it just showed their ass so much for like, oh, you like this show because it's about being a a boy, about being a nerdy boy. And there's a cool girl who's the cool girl. And, you know, whatever. I also, I really hated the love triangle aspect. I thought that sucked. It was stupid. It was just like, oh, "Oh, you're just doing this because, yeah, between the kids, Mm -hmm. or sorry, among the kids. But like, it just felt like such a stupid trope. And it's like, you don't need to go down that one. That one sucks. You know. All right, so I'm. Uh, I'll. I'll disagree with that, but uh, okay. So, the the. I know she's episode. learning things from TV. I understand she's learning about relationships from TV, and like that, there is a very valid read there. I think that it's criticizing, uh, like shitty pop culture stuff. In that, like, oh, this this young girl 
learns about relationships from watching TV. So therefore she has like a pretty shitty view of what love is like and, and what relationships are like. I can see that for sure, but it's still really kind of rubbing it the wrong way that like this incredibly powerful and awesome girl, she sees another girl and there it is. She's done. Like no, I got so yelled at a lot for that. I will, too, okay. But. What I'll disagree with there uh, is cause I, cause I, I liked the piece, but after seeing the show, I'm not entirely sure I agree yeah. because one, that is one of many outbursts that Eleven has because she's all power and id, but yeah. like no, like no super ego, right? She, she needed to go hang out with the cool girls in queer people club to understand herself better. I get that, I get right? That. But she so she's got go that on. entire weird relationship with um, Hop, is it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the sheriff. <laughs> yeah, uh, David Harbor, whatever. Uh, yeah, where like. Both of them are trying to like pour their need to like have some sort of family unit into each other, but per- like their relationship profoundly is not that. Yeah. Um, and they don't have the luxury of really indulging in it. Uh, so he's like really overbearing and controlling and protective for reasons good and bad. Uh, but it's cloying and paternalistic, and eventually she blows the hell up. Uh, you know, right. almost literally. So, like, we see throughout the season that she's like sort of on this knife's edge, where like the 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 gap between negative emotion and like explosive negative action from her yeah. is like really really narrow. The other thing that I kind of dig about this is it's almost like she's a ghost haunting her own life, and what she's seeing in that scene. I don't think it's it's there is an element of immediately she's in some way fighting over a boy uh, with, with the only other girl uh, in, in that circle. Uh, But at the same time, she's also like keenly aware of the fact that she's, she's an absence uh, in, 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 in that space. And she is really understandably worried about being replaced uh, and, and forgotten by the only people she has a relationship with. I think that moment works i think if they kept pushing it as some sort of fucking rivalry for for mike's affections uh yeah. it would have been a hundred percent toxic but i think that really shitty reflexive like how dare you how dare i see you have this relationship with somebody else uh that i thought was special and unique to us because in my world it's the only one i've ever had i kind of liked that moment yeah I mean, again, I, I've I've heard a lot of arguments for this. Like, I, I I appreciate that argument, and I appreciate also the argument that like this was like a a more conscious uh, way of sort of judging TV in a lot of ways, or like yeah. popular media. That like this is where she learned this behavior from. She yeah. learned to be jealous from TV, shotgunning she, soap know, operas. Exactly, like watching shitty TV that tells you a lot about how you're supposed to be for your gender, kind of thing. Like, I I, I appreciate those arguments. I still hated that moment. I still felt like, oh, God, fucking Christ. Like, really? The girls have to fight over the boy, and it's not even, like, a romantic moment. They're skateboarding. Whatever. It, it just sucked. I And I also, like, will admit 100% to being very sensitive to this because I have so been in a hundred false situations that are like the only woman in the group, mm-hmm. the only woman at the table, the only woman who does this, and feeling this weird pressure that you can only, there can only ever be one. So you have to be the best woman, like the best girl at the group. Like my entire childhood, I was very much like the girl in the boys group all the time. Uh, So feeling that really hard, like I will 
fully admit this is a sensitive thing for me. So maybe I do read more personally into it, but that did piss me off a lot. I I did not like that moment. Yeah. I do. I appreciate that other people have other reads on it. I yeah, really I don't know that personal context for sure. So, like, I'm a little more uh, willing to adopt different reading of it. Uh, I, yeah. I think, which um, is fair. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I like. I am. I think much more. I think I'm much cooler with moments when characters do something shitty that at least makes some sort of sense to me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I like yeah. I'm. I actually like it when characters uh, are, even if it is a little bit tropey, I think if the moment is set up and earned uh, in some way, and, and that one I felt it was, uh, like I, I, I don't mind as much when characters uh, or when a show is, show is like really aggressively going against sort of the values uh, I've adopted. Um, yeah. The 11 episode, it's really interesting because remember it comes at like a really pivotal moment. Like yes. literally I think everyone's about to get killed. And yep. then it's like, meanwhile, <laughs> and it's an urban fantasy, like it's adventure so for an hour. Yeah. And it's really, really good. Uh, and it's clearly setting up. I'm not sure it's a spinoff so much as it's like, um, another line of, yeah, another plot line. And it's probably where the show is going to an extent, right? Like there's this other, like, you know, this, this evil mad science lab, uh, at the center of Hawkins, Indiana, uh, those people are still out there. They still have power. Their influence is still out there. Uh, so that becomes the other thread, right? Is the struggle is starting, sort of expanding beyond just local. Yeah. Uh, but it's such a good episode. I just don't. Yeah, like I, I think if yeah, people that is people showing their ass because like yeah. it's a it's a really cool episode with some astonishing uh, moments. The yes. The moment where the cops are pouring into the uh, the uh, warehouse where they're hiding, and the kids go invisible, but you're seeing oh, it from the kids' so perspective, good. and it's this yeah. elaborate play. Like it is so tense, but also just an amazing image, right? Of yeah. like, you know, the cops brushing past these kids within a whisper and just not being aware. It's so cool. Yeah, I I love that episode enough that. I might love it more than the rest of that season. And I love that season. I I think the season is really strong. Like, oh yeah, I just fucking loved that episode. It was oh, so God, much there's... fun. Oh, and when they're all trapped in the lab, uh, or that <sighs> moment where Steve is going out to fight what he thinks is the one monster. Yeah, that's and that is good. such a great moment. Of, like, <laughs> the, the, the lookouts are spotting all this going sideways. Uh, and I am totally like, what a breakout character Steve became. Yeah, he sucked so much in that first season. I mean, I sh- he showed some strength at the very, very end there. He did. And that was like, okay, there's a little bit of setup. But like, my God, I, I thought Steve was bottom of the friggin' barrel. And then it's like, no, Steve's all right. I mean, he always is <laughs> an interesting performance because he, he does make yeah. clear that like his friends are bottom of the barrel. Yeah. There is a core of decency and compassion to him that is like yes. really in danger of getting snuffed out. And at times, like when he's sort of playing the roles that toxic masculinity encourages you to play, uh, he totally extinguishes that decency. Yes. <laughs> but uh, when the chips are down, he sort of chooses the route of decency. And I love in season two is basically like a character that's been well and truly humbled trying yeah. to 
figure out what it means to be like decent and good now that the old values don't hold. It's such a cool, yeah. it's such a cool arc. It really is. And uh, a lot of fun. A lot of fun to watch. Oh my god. Yeah. I yeah. mean the show is candy. It's it's like it's, oh, it's yes. it has some beautiful moments, uh, but like it is not a deep show, uh, I would say. No, no, but it is yeah. it is just a delight. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. And the synths and in the oh. intro sequence, oh my god, give me that all day and all night. Like oh it's That soundtrack so good. is so good. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, just makes me want to go to an arcade and just spend a little, you know, like 80s tourism. I just want to be like a tourist to the 80s sometimes. <laughs> just go to an arcade and be there and enjoy that place. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. That show is a lot of fun. I am so glad that you liked it and enjoyed it. That's really good. I was expecting um, to hate it a lot more. Sure, sure. Because I'd read your stuff and I'd read Cam's and I was going to be like, this is just like, you know, 80s nostalgia bullshit, which kind of is. It is, but it but turns out, yeah, that's my bullshit. <laughs> exactly, it's really pleasurable bullshit. I would call Stranger Things pleasurable bullshit in a, in a good way. With with the caveats, I, I still stand by my arguments, but uh, I, I do really like that show. It's a good time. Um, I watched some other pleasurable bullshit recently. Uh, I watched The Shape of Water, uh, Guillermo del Toro's latest movie, his latest fairy tale. Uh, about monster sex and i loved every second i loved every frame of this movie even though there was definitely (laughs) some bullshit there for fucking sure uh so this is a movie i think it actually just came out but of course i'm you know uh happily enjoying my uh writer's guild screeners uh that come in at the end of the year i'm still sort of digging through those and this was one of them uh, it is about a woman who is, uh, she's a mute woman who is a cleaning lady at a secret government facility in Baltimore. And she and Octavia Butler are, are kind of like buddies and they're always cleaning. And there's a weird uh, just research project where there's a fish guy, like a, a very tall fish man who has awesome powers and he is being tortured in this facility. And uh, she falls in love with him. And they have a beautiful uh, fairy tale, and I won't go on, and I won't talk about too much of what happens. Uh, because I, I, I think it is actually really fun to watch this for the first time, not knowing uh, what's going to happen. Because there, there is a certain fairy tale logic to everything that happens in this movie, for sure. A lot like, uh, it's less Pan's Labyrinth and more... Um, I'm trying to think of a slightly more hopeful Guillermo del Toro movie that's also Hellboy very 1. weird. Yeah, yes, yes, I, I think so. Or even Hellboy 2, which has some leaps that uh, I think make sense for what it is. Yeah, so it's it's a very, very fun movie. Um, and Richard Jenkins actually has an amazing role in this movie. Uh, it takes place in the very early 60s, like 1960, I believe. Uh, very much during uh, the Cold War. And he is a gay guy who is an artist who falls in love with a, a man at a pie restaurant. And it's like this beautiful, wonderful arc uh, to him and his friendship with, uh, with as, what's her name? Eliza. Uh, Eliza is the main character. It trades on some of the most beautiful production design I've seen in a movie. I think it, it outdoes Pan's Labyrinth with some of its uh, just gorgeous, gorgeous set design, beautiful cinematography. The costumes are just incredible. 
incredible and beautiful and wonderful. Oh God. And just, it's hard to, to describe, but sometimes a movie really kind of puts you there into a fantasy world and makes you really believe all the bullshit. And this movie does that better than most things I've seen in the last few years. It really, really, really drew me in uh, to an incredible degree. And also, um, I should mention, God, what's his name? He plays the the biggest asshole on Boardwalk Empire. Michael Shannon uh-huh. is in this movie as basically what he always plays, a total asshole with some weird religious uh, tones, uh, just chewing the fuck out of scenery and being an awful, awful, shitty military guy in this movie. Uh, so. That's kind of weird. It's like, here's agent, right? Like, just like, yeah. how would it, like, it, like having someone tell you like, look, you've got a creepy <laughs> zealot fascist face and it's really yep. effective. So we're going <laughs> to find you a lot of roles where you're creepy zealot fascist. It's, it's really funny. I was watching this with my friends and like, we were just sort of like, you know, it must be kind of fun to always play the villain. It must be kind of fun. Like it probably gets old. No, no doubt. But it's got to be kind of fun to yell at people and, and be a big dick, like, yeah. <laughs> for for money, you know? Like, it that's got to be some somewhat appealing, at least sometimes. I hope he enjoys it. I really do, because I, I can also imagine this being terrible uh, if you're always typecast. <laughs> no, I mean, hopefully at this point he's, he's so good at it. <laughs> he's rolling with it. But, like, it would be yeah. heartbreaking to imagine him, like, reading for romantic leads. And yeah. stuff like that, or 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 yeah. like trying to be the next like superhero, right? Like, you know, no, I can I can be a hero, and it's like, yeah, but I think you'd make a better villain. You're re- you're reading for shitlord the asshole uh, yeah. today, Michael, and he's like, well, you know, I thought maybe I could be Christopher, the uh, the gentle soul who enjoys baking. Like, I just I hope I truly hope he he enjoys this. Well, yeah, I really do. Um. Yeah, no, it's a movie I definitely, I definitely want to see. Del Toro's fantastic. Yeah, it's I love it. I, I, I probably want to watch it again uh, to you know fully firm up all my feelings on it because now I'm, I'm becoming that asshole who needs to watch everything six times before I know what I think. I mean, I know what I think obviously before I really feel like, oh yes, this is my official my position on this, and I feel this way. Um, but yeah, God, just on watching it last night, I, I fell in love a little bit with this movie. Even though, again, uh, it's pretty fucking hetero, you know, love story. Well, yes. I mean, he's a fish dude. Uh, but so I guess it's not like just the, the usual hetero tropes. But <laughs> it's like it's a fairy tale of the fish man. Um, people who really like Sidon in uh, Breath of the Wild should really, really watch this movie. This is everything you're going to want in, in a movie, in a romance about a fish man, basically. <laughs> Oh my god. Anyway, on that uh, on that on that note, on that beautiful fishy note, I think it's time for us to head out <laughs> and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we really do appreciate you spending time with us. And we think it'd be super nice if you would uh, tell your friends, tell people you know in your family, tell your fish boyfriend about us. Anybody that you think might enjoy the show, word of mouth is sort of how we, uh, you know, grow the show's audience. And we really do appreciate it. And also, if you could uh, go ahead and rate us on iTunes, that also helps us out quite a bit. So for Rob Zachney, 
This is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends.